0: Welcome to Disney's Four Scores. I'm John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers working today, and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. Our guest today is considered one of the most influential jazz musicians of our time. He is a two-time Grammy winner, and at various times in his career has been a session player, recording artist, album producer, a collaborator with everyone from Miles Davis to Luther Vandross, and the composer of more than two dozen film scores, including Boomerang and Marshall. He's with us today to talk about his music for the latest film, Safety, from Disney+, and we are thrilled to welcome Marcus Miller. (laughs) John, how are you? Good. Thanks for being with us today, Marcus. Uh, It's nice to be here. Before we get into the music of Safety, which, by the way, I think is a wonderful title— Can can we talk about what got you here? Because film scoring is only one part of a pretty diverse career. How did you get into the film music world and was it a goal of yours? Uh, Well, it wasn't
1: a goal. I was uh, making records. Uh, I was working, like you just mentioned, I was working with Luther and working with Miles and Shaka Khan, Aretha Franklin, David Sanborn, doing my thing, and I got a call from a, a kid who had just graduated from film school, Reginald Hudlin. And he said, hey, man, I'm just out of film school, and my senior thesis got picked up by this new film company called New Line Cinema. My thesis was based on a song that you and Luther Vandross wrote. Luther and I wrote a song called Bad Boy, and it was about a kid who snuck out at night to go to a party. And Reggie, in his dorm, heard this song and decided to write a little thesis movie script. It got picked up by New Line. So he said, I would love for you to do the music, to compose the score for this film. And I said, dude, I don't, I don't do film scores. I did one thing for Miles Davis called Siesta a few years earlier, but it was really more of a making an album and then applying the songs that we'd done for the album to the film as opposed to really getting in there and scoring the movie. So I said, Reggie, I don't really do that. He says, I love your music been listening to music for a long time, you'll be fine. So he sent me the video cassette. Remember those? <laughs> he, he sent me the video cassette, and he said, uh, "You know, get to work, you'll figure it out." And basically, I was working with a great friend of mine, Lenny White, and we just basically trialed and errored our way <laughs> through uh, a few scenes. And I invited Reggie to come hear what I had done. I was pretty proud of what I had done. So he came into the studio. And he's listening, and he's like, wow, oh, man, that's great. The, the cue is playing, oh, man, incredible. I said, oh, man, I'm glad you like it, man. He goes, one problem. I said, what's that? He said, I can't hear a word my actors are saying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so that, that was lesson number one. You know, this is, not about, this is not like making a record, you know what I mean? You actually uh, have some other considerations. Reggie's a music lover, and uh, he would come and sit with us while we worked on this music. The movie was called House Party. It did really well. The next film Reggie did was an Eddie Murphy movie called Boomerang. And uh, we had a great time, did the same thing. Reggie just sat and came up with as as many off-the-wall suggestions musically as he could think of. And he was just fascinated that I could make it happen. I could kind of realize his uh, off-the-wall ideas. So we got pretty good at this working relationship, and that's really how I got into it. I've done most of Reggie's films, including Marshall, which you mentioned earlier, and uh, then word started getting around, and then next thing I know, I'm in the film scoring business.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, Reggie's directed the new film, Safety, which is great. Yes, exactly, exactly. The first time I ever saw your name on an album was on a Dave Grusin jazz LP. You were playing Mm -hmm. bass. And I think you would have been around 22 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably younger. <laughs> I, I know you have a lot of respect for Dave, another great mm-hmm. jazz composer who's done a lot of film work. Uh, sure. Everything from Tootsie to Three Days of the Condor. And I wondered if you thought of Dave as a kind of mentor as well, and if you'd ever consulted with him about the kind of work that you two are now doing. Absolutely. You know, uh, particularly earlier on, uh, you know, I was like, hey, Dave— I'm stuck.
1: I got a musical problem I got to solve. And, you know, he would, you know, he never give me a uh, detailed directions, but what he would do was give me another way to think about something. Just kind of erase your palette, Marcus. Uh, try something off the wall. See if it inspires you to go in a different direction, things like that. Absolutely a mentor, absolutely an inspiration because he did so much great work. And I uh, realized that a lot of the really interesting harmonies that David would have on his records that I was playing on, they came, they were inspired by his work with film. And that inspired me to delve deeper into film work and see what I could kind of pull out and, and uh, incorporate into my own music, which I've done.
0: They actually feed off of each other. That's so interesting. And I suspect... Because what you guys do is different from what most film composers have done. Because most of those guys are sort of conservatory trained, sort of classical world guys. And so right. that I think that lends an interesting sonic experience that we don't get from everybody.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you listen to Dave Goose's work, what was the
0: movie? The, the Firm?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where he, the solo he piano? Did the he did the whole thing with a piano. You could tell that a lot of it initially was improvised. Improvisation really is... Basically, a form of composition is just on-the-spot composition, and you watch the film, and you get inspired, and you play along. And I've done that many times with films. I'll just watch it and play along and just see if I can find something.
0: I also can't resist asking you about Miles Davis. You were only 26, I think, when you composed, arranged, and produced his classic Tutu album. And then did two more albums after that. And I, before we even mention Siesta, which is a, also a film project, I want to ask you, how was it that you gained Miles's trust so quickly and completely?
1: Man, I don't know. I had been in Miles's band from the age of 21. I played for him for two years. And I remember maybe three weeks into getting the gig with Miles, which you can imagine how cool that was. Three weeks in... I was walking with Miles down the street. He was going to pick up his car from the garage in Manhattan. And he said, hey, man, you know what? You've never asked me how much I'm paying you. And I said, oh, man, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, it's an honor to play with you. And he began to give me this lecture on how musicians have to take care of business. They have to be concerned about that side as well. I said, no, 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 Miles, I'm taking care of that. I got the number one R&B song on Luther Vandross right now and the number two song on Aretha Franklin. I'm good, you know. He said, wait, wait, what do you mean? I said, yeah, I, you know, I write R&B, you know, and I got a few hits out there. I would have never thought that something like that would impress Miles Davis, <laughs> but he was really impressed. He kind of dug it. So whenever we came to rehearsal after having been apart for a while, what have you been doing? What, what have you been up to? You know, what project were you working on? He was really interested, like almost like a like an uncle would be interested in what a nephew is doing, you know <laughs> what I mean? So um, I left the band after a couple of years. I told him, hey, man, I really want to do some more developing as a composer, as a producer. And he gave me his blessing, which was a surprise, because I I was sure I was going to get cursed out for telling him I was leaving the band. But he was really supportive. A couple of years later, I came back to him as a composer and a producer. He was really proud that he actually witnessed my development
0: and was now getting ready to benefit from from my development. That's great. So your second album with Miles was also film-related, and it's called Siesta. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how that came about and what kind of experience it was for you? Well, Miles got a call from Mary Lambert, who was
1: the director of this film. And apparently, they were doing this film that was filmed in Spain, and they were using Miles' classic sketches of Spain as the temp score. And they decided since Miles... Seemed to be back on the scene at that time. I'm talking about 1986, 87. They decided to try to call Miles and see if he would be interested in doing a contemporary version of sketches. They figured he'd turn them down. Well, he said, yeah, of course. He said, call this number. <laughs> and he gave him my number. So they called me and they said, hey, Miles Davis uh, told us to call you. And they explained, we, we need a couple of songs from you. We would like to. Sketches, but with more electronics, you know, something that would be considered contemporary. I called Miles after watching the film because the film was a pretty unusual film. Anyway, I called Miles and I said, Miles, did you look at this film? (laughs) (laughs) He said, he said, yeah, man, it got a couple of wrinkles in it, don't it? (laughs) I said, yeah, a couple. Anyway, he said, let me know when you're done. So I put together two pieces of music for Miles and I, uh. Called him and said, hey, I need you to add your parts. So he came in and he played his parts. He played beautifully. It was incredible because, of course, this music that I wrote had a Spanish flavor. And to hear Miles really dig into that sound, he really had a connection to that Spanish sound. So anyway, we turned into two pieces of music. And I was waiting for their reply. Their reply was, great, now for the next scene. And I said, wait, wait, <laughs> am I scoring this movie? <laughs> They said, yeah, Miles didn't tell you. (laughs) Okay. So basically, I said, when do you need this done? They said, "Uh, in uh, two and a half weeks. (laughs) So I flew out to California, and they locked me in a studio. I slept in the studio. I didn't leave for two and a half weeks. Wow. I think I was speaking Spanish by the time I finished (laughs) the project.
0: So that's interesting. Between siesta and house party, then you were kind of thrown in the deep end of the pool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know...
1: I think I was pretty um, handy with musical tools, but I had to learn what the function of a movie score was. I finally realized that all I'm doing is emotionally guiding the viewer through the movie. And so I don't need to necessarily call attention to myself. And that's hard to do when you come from records because that's the whole point (laughs) of making a record, especially a jazz record is you're trying to get people's attention. So um, I really had to kind of figure that part out. But because I got thrown in and and the directors had faith in me, I started figuring it out.
0: I have to ask, though, you know, you were at that point writing actual concept albums for people like Miles, and I wonder if there's a link or a relationship because you're sort of storytelling in each case, aren't you, between movies and, and the kinds of concept albums you were doing? Yeah, they're both storytelling. You realize that's really what you're doing
1: all the time with music, with artists. you're trying to tell a story. I just started um, considering the actors and their lines as the lead singer, ah, right. as opposed to Luther's voice or Miles's trumpet. Make sure that uh, you support the lead singer, which
0: in the movies is the dialogue. So let's talk about safety. This is a true story about a Clemson University football scholarship recipient who finds himself in a in a difficult spot. His mom is in drug rehab, and there's no one to care for his little brother, so he takes on these added responsibilities, and it complicates his life, although he does succeed spectacularly. So when did Mr. Hudlin reach out to you for this? He reached out early on and basically
1: just gave me a synopsis of the film and said, get ready, because I'm in South Carolina, and I've got a stadium full of 30,000 people (laughs) filming this scene. So just get your big stuff ready to go. He prepared me, and then a couple of screenings once he got a rough cut, and then I got
0: into it. So how would you describe your musical approach? What did the movie need in the most general terms?
1: Uh, Well, I think the movie needed two things. Because although it's a football setting, a college football setting, the movie's really, at least in my opinion, about that relationship between the college football player, and his younger brother. They have a, an incredible bond. It's not mushy. They don't walk around going, I love you, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's deeper than that, in fact. And so I had to find music that really kind of enhanced that idea, that this is deep. Even if he's telling his little brother to shut up, there's an incredible love and a deep bond underneath it all. So. Finding themes that evoke that feeling was important. And then the other thing was supporting the energy when they do get to the football field. There's so many versions of classic sports themes. So my idea was, how am I going to contemporize that feeling? I I have to address it, you know what I mean? Because as soon as you see all those people in the stands, you need brass. (laughs) You need this big orchestral thing. But I also wanted it to have a contemporary flavor. So I uh, combined it with some drumline percussion. It was a little tricky getting them to work together, but that was my goal
0: and it came out pretty cool. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Marcus Miller's score for the Disney Plus movie Safety. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want um i wondered if you had to work on this and maybe even record this during the pandemic period and if so how that may have complicated your job this was a total covid movie score
1: i mean we screened the film end of february oh my god right just as things and were so, getting to shut yeah. down so I got all my reels, no longer are they on VHS, by the way, but I got, my, <laughs> I got my files, right? And I got working and Reggie came by when I was like, I had like a couple of reels done and then that was it. Reggie couldn't come by anymore. Nobody could come by. My process is I play a, a, a bunch of instruments. I have like drums and the bass and the guitars and saxes, clarinets, all sorts of percussion instruments. So I was recording on my own you know, using virtual orchestral stuff. And, but now I can't have Reggie in the room. This is the first time Reggie and I have worked where he's not just hanging out. You know, I usually have a whole spread waiting for him. He comes and just hangs out. He's on the phone. He's walking in and out. I love that, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. And we started like that, but after, like I said, after maybe a week and a half, got shut down. But the the more difficult problem was, how am I going to create this orchestra? Right we know we need a brass band and an orchestra and how are we going to do that? So that was the kind of elephant in the room as I was writing because I was sending files to everybody and they said, oh yeah, we love this. We love this, but I'm going, okay, eventually (laughs) we're going to have to figure out how to do this. So what we did was we did a virtual orchestra, right? Use all the samples. You get good at that when you do low budget movies, you know what I mean? (laughs) And then we located orchestral musicians, orchestral soloists who happen to have home studios. And we called them and said, look, this is what we're trying to do. Are you game for trying to do this? And they said, absolutely. So we sent the files to each of the instrumentalists. There's a cellist, an oboe, a trumpet, viola, maybe one or two more. Anyway, we sent them the music and they overdubbed their parts. So it was basically a combination of virtual and actual human beings. And uh, my drummer who plays in my band, I called him, I said, his name is Alex Bailey. I said, dude, what do you know about (laughs) drumline? He says, listen, I was debating when I got out of college whether to go become a drumline instructor or to be a jazz drummer. And I chose jazz, but I'm fully versed. (laughs) I said, guess what? I got a job for you, you know? (laughs) And so I would do the beats with uh, my samples, and then I would send them to Alex and say, I need you to overdub and make this thing sound huge. And what we came up with was something that has a really unique sound. You know something's different about this sound, but you can't really put your finger on it. But it really works, at least in my opinion, it really works. And I think uh, the COVID
0: maneuvers that we had to make actually give it a really unique thing. I thought that drumline sound that you created was fantastic. It sounded to me like, you know, you had 80 or 90 players out there on the field. Oh, yeah. So great that it worked out. I have to ask you about being a multi-instrumentalist. Not everybody can play what you can play. And, And it's remarkable to me that you've mastered all these instruments over the years, especially when a lot of people think of you as a bassist. How has knowing all these instruments made you a better composer? First of all, you know the
1: ranges of the instruments very clearly. When you're writing the music for the uh, clarinet part, you can feel your lip tightening up as you write higher notes. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you really physically know the limits. But more importantly, um, you know what that instrument can do. And you know where that instrument shines. And I think a lot of um, orchestration is about not just knowing the range of instruments, but knowing where they shine. It's the same as like a a sports team, you know. Shaquille O'Neal can shoot three-pointers, but do you really need him out there? Don't you need him near the basket just dunking the ball? So you need to know what each instrument's forte is, and playing a lot of instruments really uh, helps you zone in on that.
0: You talked a little bit about the, uh, the heart of the score sort of being the relationship between Ray and his little brother Faye. Can you talk about how you found what, the notes might have been, what the feel might have been, uh, because I really do think there's a, there's a kind of soul there. How you got there
1: is really hard. I'll give you a comparison. When you have a pop singer who wrote a song that becomes the biggest song in the country and it's on the top of the charts for, you know, three months, the only thing he's thinking for those three months is how the hell did I do that? (laughs) What did I eat for breakfast? How do I do that again? <laughs> I think a lot of people experience that because you try a couple of notes and you, um, you get the feeling. You get the feeling. Dave Grusen, I'll tell you what he told me. He said, the first note's easy. The second note tells you what this thing is going to be. The second note. You know, so you just hit boom. That doesn't mean anything. But you hit boom, boom, ah, there we go, right? That says something. So that second note is the one that you really have to focus on, seeing what it does to you. And you have to be open. You have to be emotionally connected to music. I know a lot of great players who they're not necessarily emotionally connected to every note. Luckily, the musicians that I came up with, they are, or they were. And that's why when you heard Miles Davis play, he didn't play a lot of notes. He didn't play a lot of notes at all. He was very economic with his playing, but it was because each of those notes was so important. He didn't play all the notes; he just played the beautiful ones, <laughs> you know. Where you had other guys, like, nah, 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 you know, and it doesn't mean as much. Luther Vandross was the same way. Roberta Flack, Luther and I played in Roberta's band before Luther started on his own stuff. We were in her band, and she really did that. So I really had experience with connecting emotionally.
0: To, to the notes. The other thing about the safety score that I wanted to ask you about was it feels very contemporary in a lot of places, almost like there's like a hip-hop vibe in certain spots. Why did you feel that was important? The older brother, I don't know, maybe he's 18, <laughs> and the younger brother is 10,
1: something like that. I'm not sure of their exact ages, but, you know, this is the realm that they're operating in. And even though this score is not a hip-hop score, you have to adjust that. I'm really a firm believer in uh, being able to listen to a piece of music if it's a record or if it's a movie. And having a pretty basic idea of when this movie was done. Now, that doesn't mean that you want a movie that's going to sound dated in 10 years. But that's a chance you have to take. Some people opt for the classic sound. That way, your music never goes out of style. But the thing is, your music is never in style either. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, for example, if you hear Duke Ellington, it's very clear <laughs> that that thing was done in the 1940s and 1950s. Very clear. But it's still beautiful music. It's still timeless music. Same thing with all the music we love. It evokes a, a specific time. But then, if you're lucky, it'll last
0: beyond that. One of the things that fascinates me about your career is all of the different things that you've done over the last... She's, I guess maybe 40 years or so, session player, touring artist, writer, producer, band leader. I wonder if, if those things have all contributed to who you are now as a composer. Oh, absolutely.
1: I was telling you about uh, running into little puzzles, musical puzzles that needed to be solved. And I've called Dave Goosen, I've called Miles Couple of times early on, but you know you don't know how long you've been around until uh, you hit a snag and you have a solution. Oh, I remember when, I remember when back in eighty one, Ray Parker Jr. showed me this trick. You know what I mean to solve this problem, or I remember you know you have this backlog of musical experiences that you don't even know until you need them. I'm glad I paid attention in orchestration class in college, which was mandatory. I'm glad that I was really interested for some reason in the stories of the older musicians in my neighborhood, the old jazz cats. Man, let me tell you, man, when we, back, back in 35, man, you had to have a sound, man. You couldn't just be playing all the notes. You had to have a sound, you know, and the rest of my young musicians, their eyes would start glazing over, but I was always fascinated by, um, those stories. And, like you hear me talking about vibratos, that stuff is really, really important. I don't think everybody's kind of tuned into that kind of stuff. So my experience is uh, really, really, they helped me as a composer. My experience as a composer helped me as a musician. Everything feeds everything else.
0: Your role as spokesman for UNESCO's Slave Root Project has, I think, informed a lot of your work for the past two years, including your last two albums. And I wonder if you can talk about that. Well, yeah, I was asked by
1: UNESCO. Um, Herbie Hancock was already a UNESCO artist for peace, and he introduced me to UNESCO. And um, it was great to meet him. I played a concert in Paris about a year after I'd met them. And I had written a song after visiting the island of Goree. Gouray. Goree's an island off the coast of Senegal, and they used to have a, a, holding, a holding house for slaves there. We visited. We had a gig in Dakar, and we visited... Gore, And it was very emotional for me, especially the tour guide. He just tells you stories that just rip your heart out, you know, and these are my ancestors. So I was very, very much affected by it. Wrote a piece of music. I actually, as an introduction, started actually telling the story, you know, in words, not music. So I started explaining and I explained how it affected me. And then we played the song and then it became something that really affected people. And it wasn't just... Black folks, I had people from all races talking about their experiences, overcoming a horrible adversity. It became something that was really universal. And the people at UNESCO were in the, the audience in Paris when I did it. And they said, you have to be the spokesperson for our slave route project. And rather than just be the quote unquote spokesperson, I decided I'd like to incorporate my music into this thing. If I'm going to do it, let me really get into it, jump in with both feet. So I did an album, Aphrodisia, that kind of, (laughs) I followed the slave route and then decided I'm going to collaborate with musicians from each place along the slave route. So I started with some musicians from Morocco and Mali and West Africa. Then I, I hooked up with some South American musicians and another song, some Caribbean musicians, and then another song, some New Orleans musicians. I just basically followed the route. So I was really, really into it.
0: Mm-hmm. i think that's great and to bring this back to the movie world for a second safety is playing on disney plus and i'm sort of curious to know we're, we seem to be in a kind of transitional period where so many movies seem to be airing on streaming services uh, and i'm wondering what your take is on the whole thing and if you think the theatrical experience will come back
1: well if you go back to Napster, is that what it was called? Oh, yeah,, um, And the music business was interesting because people were predicting the end of the music business since I was a kid. I remember when cassettes came out and you were able to record music on your own. People said, this is the end of the music business because everybody's just going to record stuff off the radio. And then CDs came and you didn't have to listen to the whole album. You could just skip to the song you wanted. That was going to be a big deal. And music has survived all those things. So when this kind of Napster thing came, music business was pretty smug in my opinion. And it turned out that this time the threat was real, you know, and the music business slept on it and the music business got hit pretty hard. At the same time, the movie business seemed to be a little bit more aware, you know. And I remember saying to Chris Rock, do you think the same thing's going to happen with movies that's happened with music? And he said, no, man, like, where are you going to take your girlfriend on Friday? And that's a big point. That's a big point. And I said, you know what? He's right. Now I don't know because people have found alternatives. There's streaming. There's, you know, home theaters. There's all sorts of alternatives. But I still think in the end, you want to go out. I mean, we're human beings. So I'm hoping that it'll come back. One thing I do know from the music business is that it never comes back exactly the way it was. I got musicians who are still waiting for albums to come back. And it's... (laughs) It'll come back, but it'll come back as a novelty. You know how, like, the hipsters are really into vinyl, you know what I mean? It'll come back maybe like that, but don't sit around waiting for the good old days, man. You really have to keep your eyes open and be flexible.
0: What's up next for you? Do you have other films lined up or other musical projects? I'm just uh, working on some more virtual stuff because
1: that's what we're going to have to do for a while. I got um, some other film stuff coming up. And uh, that's one talent that musicians need to have, is flexibility. And look, we're we're jazz musicians, we're improvisers, so we got to figure stuff out. I have a drummer friend who said to me, you know what, in this period, there are no bad ideas, <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> so whatever you can come up with, man, to keep the, keep the show going, man, you got to do. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today, Marcus, and an equal pleasure to have spent so much time with your music over this past few days. So thank you for uh, being with you. us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you could rate it, because that really helps others find the series. Check out Safety on Disney+, and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by Disney Music Emporium the ultimate online destination for all things collectible and limited edition from the legendary Disney Music Catalog. Disney Music Emporium is the place to go for exclusive music collectibles, including vinyl picture discs and limited edition posters from over 80 years of classic Disney music, plus the latest vinyl albums from Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm soundtracks. Discover more. Go to DisneyMusicEmporium.com.